Welcome to Indie Thinker with Reed Huberman. You're about to make the jump from the dishonest mainstream media into free and independent thought from key thought leaders on the subjects of culture, causes, politics, and faith. Welcome to Indie Thinker with Reed Huberman. It's going to be a great day. I've got a really, really cool show planned for you guys. For those of you who have been following along, you know uh, we're going to be doing today the best of faith. Now, this is my wheelhouse. This is where I thrive. I studied theology and got a master's degree in that stuff and studied philosophy really, really in depth. So I really love speaking about these things. Um, and I love speaking about them because most people consider them to be esoteric. But the ideas of faith are really not just a specialized field of knowledge for specific people. Really, I, I, when when it's done well, theology and philosophy really is a is kind of an attempt to answer life's biggest questions. So that's why I love faith guests, because they're attempting to try to answer questions that we ask ourselves all every single day on a regular basis. And I've had some great faith guests in the past. So if you've missed them in the past, or maybe you just need a refresher, I'm going to pull out some of the best clips from my faith guests and provide them for you now so that you can hear from these people themselves, uh, some of their inspirational and impactful stories. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy the best of faith. Education does start in the home because when you look from a biblical perspective, as I said earlier, the family is the first most fund fundamental of all human institutions that God ordained. And a family is when God raises up a man and a woman. The first family was Adam and Eve, and then they had children. And we are to raise up godly children. We, we're taught how to train those children. Uh, and we're taught there's roles for mother, roles for father in the education of our children, what the priorities are, where to fill them with biblical salt as uncontaminated as possible, teach them how to defend the faith, teach them the truth of God's word, what they believe, why they believe what they do, know uh, their doctrines as a Christian, where they come from, but then so they can impact the world. And you know, uh, as you went on there to talk about uh, the Democratic Party and so on being the party of science. It's interesting that uh, for those of us who say abortion is killing a human being, we're called anti-science. For those of us who say there's only two genders, male and female, we're the ones that are supposedly anti-science. Right. The interesting thing is the science of uh, genetics, for instance, if you look at the human chromosomes, I mean, we have 23 pairs of chromosomes and the sex chromosomes uh, the male has an X and Y and the female has an X and X. There's scientific evidence from, uh, from genetics that actually confirms uh, two genders, male and female. And it's interesting, you know, how uh, you'll find the abortion lobby will say, well, a woman has a right to do with her body what she wants to justify abortion. Well, if you're a female and you have a fertilized egg that's XY, the why didn't come from the female, it came from the male. Yeah. Uh, that's not a part of your body. And so, you know, when you start to look at it from a perspective of science, uh, it's those who, it's those who believe in abortion and reject two genders who are actually anti-science. And, you know, when you look at, you know, scientific evidence that confirms what the Bible is saying, you mentioned Darwin's finches before we even get to that, which really has a bearing on that. I think one of the greatest evidences out there confirming the fact of a creator is our DNA itself. DNA is a language system and it's an information system. You know, the DNA that builds a dog or a cat or an elephant or a human being is like books of information 
uh, like going into a library and having all of these books and engineering diagrams and so on, hundreds and hundreds of books and, and tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of pages of all this information, but the information has to be read by a code. And DNA actually has the information to make the code to read the information. Now, the reason I say all that, if you're gonna believe that life arose by natural processes, matter somehow had to form information and somehow had to, had to make a language system. We've never seen matter produce one bit of information. I mean, yeah. in living things, there's not millions, not billions, not trillions. It's much greater than that, the amount of information. It's like zillions of bits of information in living things. So how does all that happen? We've never seen matter produce one bit of information. Information only comes from an intelligence. Matter cannot produce a code by itself. You know what happens to software codes if, uh, if random processes get involved, it destroys them. Uh, and codes only come from an intelligence. And so really DNA cries out in the beginning, God. There's no way life could have arisen by natural processes. And then when you look at all the different kinds, you mentioned Darwin's finches. You know, Darwin's finches are used as the classic example of evolution in the public school textbooks. And what do we actually find? You know, when you look at uh, Darwin's finches uh, and what happened was this, Darwin collected these specimens from the Galapagos Island when he sailed around the world in his boat, the Beagle. And the finches on the Galapagos, there are different species. There were those that were smaller, medium size, large size. And so they had smaller beaks, medium sized beaks, larger beaks, and they were different to the finches on the mainland. And so that's a classic example of evolution. But actually, it's a classic example of speciation within a kind. Because yeah, what were they? Finches? What are they? Finches? What will they be? Finches? Yes. Uh, that's not evolution. That's finches. And if I may, I want to pause right there and just ask a question. Because we have heard, I know I have, uh, since, <laughs> since I was a kid in school, that we came from monkeys or that we came from bacteria or that we came from this you know, goop of chemicals or whatever. But, but is there actually any like evidence in observable science that there is evolution outside of a species that that actually we can come from a tadpole like creature uh, or anything like that so there is obviously evolution within a species but is there any evidence that we have ever found because i'm as far as i can tell this is totally theoretical science that there is evolution outside of a species so there's just like one animal and everything else springs from it when you're talking about species we have to be careful you see when you look at our classification system, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species, uh, we would say that the kinds that God's word is talking about is at the family level in most instances, sometimes order, but mainly family level. If you look at dogs, 34 species of dogs, but you can connect them all. They're all interrelated in some way. Uh, this one can breed with that one, that one bred with that one, that one with that one, that one never bred with that one, but you can still connect them. And so you've got to look at what the kind is. And when it comes to birds, Finches are a part of a kind. And so all these different species are all connected. So you can get one species producing a different species. What you can't get is one kind producing a totally different kind. Uh, it's like dogs will never become a different kind. They're always going to be dogs. You can have dingoes, wolves, coyotes, all these different species, but they'll always be dogs. When it comes to finches, they're part of a bird kind that involves other birds as well, but they'll all be part of the same, all be part of the same kind. Uh, and there's many different kinds of birds. And so we've never seen one kind change into another. And that's where we have to be careful with the terminology because we do see speciation and 
the secularists will say speciation is an example of evolution. Well, it's how you define evolution because that's an example of what people would term as microevolution, which means just changes within a kind, but it's not macroevolution, which is one kind changing into a different kind. And the reason you can have all these variation within a kind in different species is simply because God put all the genetic diversity there to start with. So there can be lots of different combinations. And so you can therefore have uh, lots of variation. Look at the human kind, look at the differences, yet we all go back to Adam and Eve because of all that genetic diversity God put there. Uh, evolutionists can't explain how you can get all this genetic diversity because they say it has to arrive by chance over millions of years, but we never see that happening. The genetic diversity is already there, which is why natural selection is really the opposite of an evolutionary process. So finches from the mainland producing different species of finches on the Galapagos is not evolution in the macro sense at all. Yeah, that's great. Now, now I'd also like to ask about this because I think people come into contact with this idea very, very often, the dating of the earth. So if people come into the Creation Museum, they're going to encounter, whether they realize it or not, an idea, young earth creationism, and perhaps even maybe some Christians don't understand uh, what that is. But rather than giving like a treatise on young earth creationism, rather I'd like to talk about the way we date things and if there's room for kind of not only negotiation, but also failure for those methods, because we're very often just given a black and white kind of idea in terms of the way that we date things and the technologies that we have to, to date things. And the reality is, is a lot of those technologies um, are very flawed, very theoretical. Uh, I'm not trying to say that there's no merit to them whatsoever or that they're even incorrect. What I'm saying is, is that there's room to kind of look at these things and not just take one perspective about them based upon the technologies uh, that we have. So whether it's rock strata or whether it's carbon dating, whatever it may be, uh, I, I would love for you, for you to kind of just tell us um, from what you can, if you can, uh, about the dating techniques that we use, how reliable are they, and um, how trustworthy are they for, for us? Well, um, have you got a couple of hours? Uh, yeah. right, so, so very quickly, first of all, Reed, I want to make a statement. You can come back to it if you want. I'll just make a statement very quickly. Yeah. The reason I believe in a young earth is a consequence of what the Bible says in Genesis. You can't have death, bloodshed, disease, suffering before sin. The fossil record is full of death, bloodshed, disease, suffering. Uh, and God created in six days. We have all those genealogies in the Bible. Nowhere do you get millions of years from the Bible. And you can't have a fossil record with all the death and disease millions of years before man. So to me, that rules that out. So, so to me, young earth is not the issue. Uh, biblical authority, starting with God's word, is the issue. And well, let me, so, let me step, step in and just quickly say, so now this is where some people will say, well, now that's confirmation bias because you're starting with a prior rather than starting with the evidence. So keep going because I know you're yes, going to Yes, but everyone does. Yeah. So, so those who reject that, uh, where are they getting the millions of years from? Right. They don't get it from the evidence because nowhere can you go and dig up a rock that says I'm millions of years old. Nowhere do you go and see millions of years. You see rocks in the present. And that's the point. So where does the millions of years come from? If they hadn't been taught that idea, they wouldn't, they wouldn't see that, so to speak. Um, yes. The thing that I would say is this, look, you cannot scientifically prove the earth is young and you can't scientifically prove the earth is old. 
what you can do is look at the dating methods that are used in the present, understanding their assumptions to see if they overwhelmingly uh, are consistent with a young earth or an old earth. And 90% of all the dating methods that are used actually contradict uh, an old earth. Wow. Now, that's not ultimate proof. See, the reason I say you can't prove, we, the problem is a lot of people have not been taught correctly about what science is and what it isn't. We exist in the present. How do you prove something in relation to the past that you can't repeat, that you can't see? You know, I can, I can go to the Grand Canyon with Bill Nye and we can agree on how thick uh, the Coconina sandstone is. We can agree on the size of the grains. Uh, we can uh, ag agree on uh, what layer is above it. But what we can't agree on is how long it took to be laid down because we weren't there to see it. Yeah. When you look at all of our dating methods, it doesn't matter what dating methods they are, but you could talk about the radiometric dating methods like rubidium, astronium, or potassium argon, or uh, uranium lead. What we're doing is we're saying, okay, if you take the radiometric dating methods, uh, uranium is a radioactive material. Over time, it breaks down, we call it a half-life, into its daughter elements, and it goes through you know, a series of um, different changes to, to get to those daughter elements. Uranium changes in a particular form of lead. So if we know how fast that occurs and you dig up a sample and you assume all the lead there came from the uranium, you assume the rate of change has always been the same. You assume there was no lead there to start with. You calculate the age of the rock. But that assumes all those things and all those assumptions can be shown to be invalid. There's been many instances. This has even happened at Mount, Helen, Mount St. Helens. It erupted on May 18th, 1980. That in then uh, in the... Uh, 80s, uh, late 80s, a, a, a lava dome and 90s, a lava dome started to be formed that, that solidified and you can go there today and you can sample the material and use, you know, potassium argon or some of the other dating methods, it'll date to hundreds of thousands or up to millions of years old. Uh, there's been instances, for instance, in New Zealand where a lava flow has occurred and we know when it occurred, it was, you know, a result of a volcanic eruption and then you date the lava by potassium argon, it dates to millions of years old, because what they found was that potassium, over time changing into argon, well, uh, there's argon that comes up in the lava, so it looks old to start with when it's zero years old because it formed as the lava come up. And so it's already got inbuilt age simply because it brings that argon up with it. And so it all didn't come from the potassium over time. So. In other words, all dating methods have assumptions in relation to the past. And as I said, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dating methods you can use, the amount of salt in the ocean or, you know, lots of things like that where we see things changing over time. But 90% yeah. of them actually contradict totally the billions of years. But all dating methods have assumptions. So we'd say there's a lot of evidence out there that's all consistent with a young earth but it is true, my belief in a young earth comes from scripture, uh, not from so-called science, because science can't prove or, dis or, or prove the earth is young or old. And that's the point that we've got to understand. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, we have room for conversation. The debate is not over. The book is not closed. We need to be able to speak about these things, speak about them openly, and not allow people who come with pseudoscience or self-imposed science 
or an axe to grind, quite frankly, which any of those things used to be unacceptable in the academic community, and it just doesn't seem that they are anymore. Uh, that's just my own personal thinking on, on that. But needless to say, we need to not cower back and retreat and take a secondary option to conversations that there deserves to be much more robust understanding. And, and I guess ultimately throughout everything we talked about today is, is I want to try to discourage people from this idea of blind faith. I think blind faith really is not only a retreat option, but it's the laziest option possible. We say, because I'm not willing to investigate my faith, to undergird my faith with facts and knowledge and evidence. Uh, not only, again, are we robbing people of that uh, opportunity to hear those things when we don't equip ourselves with them, but we're robbing ourselves of the knowledge that blind faith is not the faith of Christianity. It's not historically the faith of Christianity. Christianity, Orthodox Christianity, is historically the, the, the movement of faith in combination with reason, great intellectual giants. And you think about even in America, uh, well, let me not move too quickly. Great intellectual giants who come from the Christian world, Augustine and even Luther. And, 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 and then you have somebody like Jonathan Edwards. Uh, I heard somebody say just recently that Jonathan Edwards was more brilliant than Einstein. I don't know how they can prove that. But needless to say, very intelligent people who even in the Americas, some of these guys, you think about Charles Finney starting uh, the great academies like Yale and Princeton, Christian men who felt like faith and reason were so important to hold together for the sake of our culture. And so I think we just need to kind of maybe return to some of that stuff. Um, and, and, and perhaps this brings us to kind of the next point. Now, this is a little bit selfish because uh, I have memorized uh, at least the simplicity, uh, the simplest uh, case for a scientific argument that I think is just absolutely fascinating to me. I want to describe it for people, and then I'd love for you to kind of uh, speak to that specific issue or whatever issue uh, like it that you'd like to. But the idea is this, irreducible complexity. It's just one of the uh, the simplest things that I could, uh, you know, get in my mind so that I could speak to other people about it. And irreducible complexity complexity just simply says this, that if you take a life form down to its most simple, basic form, that what you would need for it to even be alive, if you strip everything else away, that's where the irreducible thing. So it's irreducible. No, you can't reduce it anymore. You reduce it down to its most simple, basic form that life is still so complex that the only way, at least in this theory, the only way that you can explain it is with some type of designer because it's still so complex that something would have to have created that thing. So, so what would you say about irreducible complexity or maybe even any other uh, theory that you think is important for Christians to espouse so that we do not remain silent on important topics of conversation. Well, certainly you can give uh, just so many examples in regard to that. But, you know, uh, what irreducible complexity is all about, and if you think of the work of Michael Bayhe, and there's many others that have written on this as well, it basically comes down to something like, give the example of a very simple machine, like a mousetrap. Um, but all the parts have to be there or it won't work. If you take one part off, it doesn't work. Uh, when you start to look at life, or whether it's single-celled life or whatever it is, all the bits need to be there um, or it's not going to work. You know, even, even in the, the, the humankind, uh, for instance, we just had uh, a granddaughter. She's only six years old and she's been diagnosed with uh, type 1 uh, diabetes because 
you know, the, the pancreas doesn't work. And so now you don't get insulin. Uh, one little thing stops like that. Well, unless you had means of overcoming that, which we do today with insulin injection and so on, then you wouldn't survive. You, you just couldn't survive that. You can have one little gene out of place uh, in your chromosomes and it can cause massive problems or, or cause death or all sorts of disabilities and so on. So what you see through the animal and plant kingdom, what you see through life is irreducible complexity. And in other words, you can look at it like machines. They're all like machines, biological machines. And those machines, all the parts have to be there, it won't work. So how do each of those parts evolve independently? And how do each of those par parts evolve to make it work when it's all got to be there to make yeah. it work? And that just shows e evolution from that perspective is just impossible. Of course, the evolutionists would say, yeah, but given up over time, this little part changed a bit, this little part changed a bit, this little part changed a bit. But, you know, that's just their belief and it doesn't make sense when you look at it. But there's even something I spoke to earlier that to me is even a greater argument than irreducible complexity. And that is, where does the complexity come from in the first place? It's from the information in our genes. And information can't arise by natural processes. Information can only arise uh, as a result of an intelligence. So there's the information that's there and then the information that builds the machines and all the parts of each machine has to be there or it won't work. So as you start to look at that, you realize that those who believe in naturalistic evolution, I would say this, it's not just a blind faith. It's a faith that lacks credulity. See, a lot, of, a lot of people think, oh, Christians have a blind faith. No, we don't. We have a faith that makes sense of what we see and we can show how science confirms that over and over again. Whereas atheists have a faith that doesn't make sense of what we see in regard to irreducible complexity, in regard to DNA information, for instance. And so their faith lacks credulity because it doesn't make sense from, from a scientific perspective. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, you saying that reminds me of a book that I just recently looked at uh, by Norman Geisler. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Like sometimes you have to make some some wild leaps to think that there there is no design, that there is nothing behind the fact that we exist. I, I'm even reminded of an analogy you gave in one of your talks where a professor is trying to disprove Christianity and he puts a bunch of letters in a hat <clears throat> And he gets three students to draw randomly letters from that hat. Uh, and the idea is that just from random happenstance, you can create a word. And so randomly, three students come up, they pull out a letter B, letter A, letter T, and they spell the word bat. Uh, and he says, see, you don't need a designer for this. You can randomly pull out letters and there you can spell a whole word. So think about what we can do without a designer. And and then you say this about that analogy. Well, the problem with that is that like, where did the letters come from in the first place, right? There, there had to be an origination place for those letters so that they could even, not to mention language, right? We don't even want to jump into like social constructivism and, and language and epistemology. And where all of that comes from, needless to say, there has to be a designer. And, and again, for a more simplistic definition, it's like the, uh, the old thing about an explosion in a printing press and you get an Oxford Dictionary. So the reality is just simply this, is that Christians believe the very sensical position that there's a designer, that there's a creator that I'm not an accident, that something as intricate and detailed and engineered as a human being comes from some place. 
yeah and that and when you say oh we got a word by chance you know that, that, that that's how life could have evolved you know just by chance but that word is only a word to somebody who has the language for that word it's not a word that is not a word to a a Chinese or a Frenchman or whatever. It's only word to those who have the English language who understand that that way. And so you've got to have the language and you've got to have the words. It's all got to be there. Uh, so again, there's no way uh, that can be used as an analogy that life could arise by chance. And this is again, Christianity 100. This may be even Christianity 60 yeah. as in dumbbell Christianity. Uh, one of the first premises of Christianity is your physical death does not end your existence. Mm -hmm. I don't know. And, and that's exactly what you just were talking about. Your physical death does not end your existence. So, and everybody's going to die. Uh, whether you die at eight months old or eight years old or 88 years old, you're going to die. And it, but that doesn't end your existence. Uh, then comes the judgment. The judgment is coming. And so, yes, certainly the creator looks at death much differently than we do. And honestly, even for the Christian, he teaches, Jesus taught us that death for the Christian isn't that important. And people are like, your physical death isn't that yeah. important. I think people go, what's well, important to me? Well, I get that. But Jesus said, uh, do not fear those who can kill the body. He says, but fear those who after the body is killed can cast the soul into hell. He says, yes, I tell you, fear him. And I get that. That's the question. And by the way, back to Canaanite children, just briefly, uh, most theologians and most apologists that I'm aware of believe that children will be saved. Now, they disagree on the mechanism for that salvation. They disagree on uh, at what age. Nobody knows that that, you know, when do you stop being a child that could be saved? But almost all of the, uh, uh, well, at least the majority of apologists and, and theologians that I know agree that children will be saved. So that would then be sending Canaanite children into a far better place than seeing their brothers and sisters sacrificed to Molech or being sexually molested or being forced to have sex with animals, which was widespread, read my article, in Canaanite <laughs> culture. Yeah. All right. So um, so here's a, uh, a question that's asked by C.S. Lewis that is loaded with some presupposition and some premises that need to be uh, unpacked. And but ultimately, it will lead us to the next kind of conversation uh, of what is the purpose of suffering? Because ultimately, the next question, I think, along the timeline here of a conversation about suffering is this. OK, so we talk about the fall. We talk about God maybe being justified in those things that he's done in the past and that we see in Scripture. We see evil. We see suffering. Why not just create a world where we uh, where we don't have suffering? So so here's what C.S. Lewis said. If God were good, he would wish to make us creatures happy. And if he were almighty, he would be able to do that. He'd be able to do what he wished. But since creatures are not happy, therefore, God either lacks goodness or power or both. And Obviously, you're a scholar in this issue, so you know he's kind of toying with Epicureans, or, uh, Epicurus's original uh, kind of phraseology here with essentially God is either not good or he is uh, not all-powerful, and uh, and therefore, if he does exist, he must be malevolent. Of course, this is picked up again to uh, quote, unfortunately, Richard Dawkins. This is picked up uh, by people like Richard Dawkins, but um, all right, so 
when we hear this, why, why not just create a world that doesn't have suffering? Wouldn't that be a better place to live? And I know we kind of hinted maybe to the answer I think you may give, but I'd love to hear what you would say about that. Why not just create a perfect world, utopia, which obviously socialism can create, haha, that's a joke, um, uh, that people can create, haha, that's also a joke. Um, why not just create a perfect world? Well, you know, first of all, let me address something about Lewis specifically. Uh, Lewis didn't believe that that argument worked, right. just to be clear to the audience. He didn't believe for, in fact, he said that in his book, The Problem of Pain, where he's explaining, and I think he does a very good job of explaining why God- yeah, he totally unpacks that after he makes that statement. He starts to talk about it. I want to make sure yeah. everybody understands that Lewis didn't believe that, uh, that that argument stands. He certainly did not, because the argument doesn't stand. Uh, why did, you know- I, it's always interesting to me, and this can be answered in so many different ways. Why doesn't God, why does God create a world where there's suffering? Well, once Adam and Eve sinned, why the question then is, and as I already told you, you can't create free creatures and not allow them to use their free will wrongly. Adam and Eve used their free will wrongly. So the question is, why doesn't God just let them live in paradise? Why should he? <laughs> uh, once creatures are in rebellion against him, why should he let them live in paradise? In fact, I think what he's done, very simply what he did is he says, oh, you think you're going to do better on your own, knock yourselves out. Uh, but don't think that I'm going to let you live in a, in, in a garden, you know, the old, let you live in a rose garden. I'm not. I'm going to make life very difficult for you. Uh, and so he, he sentenced humankind when Adam and Eve sinned, he sentenced humankind to death. And so uh, this is the penalty. Uh, and to those who say, well, I don't like it, that God, one of the things when it comes to theodicy is we're not trying to defend a God that the atheist would like. Not at all. Right. Uh, when an atheist comes to me or a skeptic comes to me and they say, how can God allow evil? I'm going to give them the Bible's answer. What I think is the Bible's answer to why God allows evil. If the skeptic says, well, I don't like that answer. I don't care. If the atheist <laughs> says, well, I don't like that answer. I don't care because I'm not trying to defend a God that the atheist would like, because a God or the skeptic would like. Uh, I'm, I'm not interested because a God that the skeptic would like doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. The one that exists is the God of the Bible. And if you ask me as a Christian, why does the God that I worship allow evils? Well, I'm going to give you the Bible's answer. Now, if a skeptic says, well, I don't believe the Bible, that's an entirely different thing. That's not related actually to the problem of evil. We can then get off on whether why should we should believe that the Bible was accurately transmitted to us. By the way, I have an article you can Google on the bibliographical test updated, and you'll find an article on the transmission of the New Testament. Um, or we can get into an argument on whether Jesus was really raised from the dead. But uh, when it comes to why God allows evil, he doesn't he he does himself or us any favors by allowing our lives to be easy what he needs us to do because then we'd really wouldn't want him at all because our lives would be so easy but jesus said hey you who are laboring or heavy heavily burdened come to me uh but see what the atheist wants is well he shouldn't have made a life so that it was difficult Right. He should have made our lives easy. Well, that's, I'm sorry. He's not interested in that. And if you don't like it, tough taquitos, frankly, <laughs> because this is the way the Lord works yeah. and what he's doing. Jesus really was raised from the dead and Christianity is true. And uh, if you don't like the God of the Bible, well, you're going to have to deal with that one day in front of him. Hmm. Yeah. How, however, I would just say too, that um, we, we, you mentioned the punitive aspect of 
uh, of why suffering exists. But but there's also and and this is where I do think that we can. Um, we don't have to defend God. We're not God's PR men, but uh, because we just preach the truth, and and uh, whether people like it or not, it, it is what it is. However, I do think that this is ground that needs to be considered by even the most staunch skeptic. Is that there's not only a punitive understanding of suffering from the Christian worldview, but there's obviously a redemptive. Uh, standpoint through which suffering, we look at suffering. And so I think about Bertrand Russell's uh, quote, which I'm sure you're familiar with, where he said, who's sitting next to the uh, bed of a child who is dying could say that they actually believe in God. Um, And so the atheist, which I think needs to be mentioned to the atheist, but also to the Christian, the atheist does not address nor answer the problem of suffering. They merely sidestep it with semantics Uh, because the suffering still exists and all you've done is shot yourself in the foot and gotten rid of the one transcendent thing that can help you transcend the suffering that you're possibly in because you have to posit a transcendent good from your suffering, which can only come from a transcendent God. Um, So what is, in your mind, the redemptive purpose of suffering? And and, and, uh, beyond the punitive aspects of suffering, what good does God bring out of suffering? Well, that's a good question. Before I, uh, let me go back to addressing Bertrand Russell. I thought that particular quote was funny. I I laugh a little bit at that, and I'll tell you why. Atheist Sam Harris, and I quote this in my book, Immortal, How the Fear of Death Drives Us and What We Can Do About It. I quote atheist Sam Harris, who says, there's no better better answer than to tell someone who's lost a loved one, and he even says a little child, than to say, that child's going to be in heaven. Uh, So it's interesting. I'd love to get Sam Harris, uh, Bertrand Russell's long gone. I'd like to get Sam Harris and Bertrand Russell in the room and say, huh, Bertrand, uh, you're saying it would be ridiculous to talk about that. I, I think that's just, I think it just shows me us how ignorant, frankly, Bertrand Russell was and how he really hadn't thought the issues through enough because there's no better thing to tell someone who's suffering uh, of a terminal illness than you're going to be in heaven forever with Jesus and we're going to be reunited because we believe in Jesus too. So I think that Bertrand Russell's comment is ridiculous. Um, I mean, and, and by the way, in my book, Immortal, uh, I quote many atheists. Uh, who agree that if Christianity were true, that it absolutely offers the best answer to the fear of death. Many atheists agree with that. And so I, uh, that's, just, that's just ridiculous. Anyway, the redemptive value of suffering is, first of all, suffering makes us insecure about this world. And that's eternally valuable because we shouldn't be in love with this world because this world has fallen, this world's a mess. People are raping and torturing and murdering each other in in large numbers. Uh, We shouldn't be in love with this world. And God God wants to point us to something else. And also God wants, this is what we're learning here. And here's perhaps the biggest thing of all, there's many, I've got, uh, I wrote an encyclopedia article in the Encyclopedia for Christian Civilization uh, on, I think I came up with 10 different ways that God uses suffering in, in our lives. But perhaps one of the biggest things is if you connect suffering with uh, sin, which I do, I say that all suffering is one way or another, not directly, but one way or another resulted to creaturely sin. If you connect all suffering with sin, this is eternally valuable knowledge so that God can bring us into his eternal kingdom, where we can live forever in his eternal kingdom, still have free will, and yet not sin. Why? Because we're learning here the stupidity of sin. We're learning here the stupidity of rebellion. And and that's eternally valuable knowledge. 
In fact, I ask my, uh, I ask audiences all the time. I say, would you like to see me jab this pen into my eye? And everybody's like, what? And I say, I could, I could just jab it right in my eye. I could. And I said, but I'm not going to, you know why I'm not going to do that? Because it'd be too stupid. I'm too smart for that. But we don't tell little, we don't give little babies pens. Why not? They jab it right in their eye. Uh, why? I have learned that you don't stick a pen in your eye. Babies don't know that. You don't, my colleague, JP Moreland is always a little more de indelicate than me. He says, he uses the analogy of why don't you, uh, why don't, how many of you would like to go outside, get a spoon, go outside and chow down on a steaming pile of dog poop? Nobody wants to do that. Why? Because they know better, but you don't put little crawly babies out near dog poop. Why? They crawl right into it. They don't know better. And Perhaps, well, I think the most redemptive thing about sin is we're learning here that sin is stupid. And by the way, at the judgment, which is going to be significant, uh, and it, of each person alive today, there's 7 billion people alive today, is judged for only 10 minutes. That's 133,000 years. Uh, that's going to be quite an education. So I just, and anyway, I think that I could go on and give more reasons that, that suffering is redemptive. But to me, that's the biggest one is we're learning here that sin is stupid and that sin has led to a world uh, where if you say to God, I, I want to do my own thing, he says, okay, fine, do your own thing. Uh, and, you know, by the way, if you have a daughter or son who's in rebellion against you, if you're a good parent, and then, I mean, they're in overt rebellion and showing you a lot of disrespect, and all of a sudden they come up to you and they say, hey, dad, can I have 50 bucks for dinner and borrow the car? What are you going to say? Mm -hmm. Not if they're in rebellion. I think a good parent says, no, you yeah. treat me like crud. I'm not going to, no, I'm not going to do it. Anyway, so uh, I think we need to understand, look at the larger picture here on what's going on in the world when it comes to evil. Yeah, I just I just want to add one thing to it, and maybe even hear you respond to it because um, I, I think you'd agree, but we'll we'll see. Um, in Psalm twenty three, it says, "You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, and then you anoint my head with oil." To me, that's like such a beautiful poetic way of looking at suffering. So God's right there created a table with your enemies all around. Now, that may be a table of peace treaty or something like that, but nonetheless, it's your enemies who are sitting around that table. You can think about that as literal physical enemies or maybe even psychological, emotional, whatever. But nonetheless, it says that in the presence of his enemies is where God begins to anoint his head with oil. That it's where that, and, and, that, and of course, anointing is used as a kind of biblical uh, analogy for supernatural impartation or supernatural authority. Um, God giving you something that you didn't normally have, and he's doing it in your head. So suffering can potentially produce a knowledge that you would not otherwise have outside of being in the presence of your enemies, dealing with difficulty. And I think we would all agree that the most ill-equipped people in this world uh, for dealing with life are the people who have never had to experience any hardship. The people who are most equipped to deal with life are people who've gone through some level of suffering, uh, experienced pain, and through that pain, it's trained them to do things like not eat dog poop, because when you stick dog poop in your mouth the first time, you spit it out and you realize, I'm never doing that again. So there is this kind of like redemptive epistemological purpose for for suffering that's that's so so important now uh sh certainly comment on that if you want to but i want to i want to add this to it so, uh we talked a little bit about this before we started recording but surprise i think is something that we take for granted because surprise is the thing that keeps us in awe it's the thing that causes us to look at the stars and say wow those things are are so big and so beyond my comprehension 
it is the backdrop for revelation in the Christian framework that uh, surprise gives us this uh, this knowledge that we didn't have prior to um, prior to that moment. Um, I think suffering in a way does the same thing. The suffering itself is not a surprise because this world is full of it. But what can happen through suffering is incredibly surprising, I think, sometimes, at least in my own experience, and I haven't dealt with a whole lot. But what I have dealt with, the pain and the difficulty, gives me at least enough confidence to be able to sit at the bedside of that dying child and look at them in the eye and tell them, I believe that God can use this for good. It may not be good what you're going through. To the, to the oncology patient who's got cancer, what you're going through may be painful and it may be horrible, but I know a God who can use this for good. You will see things, and I can say this confidently to them, you will see things, hear things, and know things that only God can show you through this uh, if you turn to him. Uh, that that will take you by surprise that you never expected and show you an appreciation for life that you never once had. Okay. Uh, yes, indeed. A couple of things. One, I don't, when he said, I, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, uh, means he said that the enemies see God putting a table down for David and, and, and giving him good food and get, letting him banquet. I don't think it means that the enemies are sitting around the table too because that would mean they were partakers at the table. I think what it means is they're standing back and looking at this and going, God is, wow, look at what God's done for these guys, uh, for this guy. Uh, and uh, for the child, you know, one of the things in having dealt with this subject for many years, and by the way, I've had bone cancer. Uh, so I'm not, uh, I'm not unaware of this. I had bone cancer. I lost part of my spine to bone cancer. Uh, so I have quite an understanding of suffering. And I agree with you uh, that, that suffering is redemptive in the sense that what well one it makes us more christ-like it purifies us romans chapter 5 verses 2 and 3 uh suffering purifies us makes us more like jesus and it encourages us romans 5 2 and 3 again it encourages us that christianity is true because i haven't gone through any suffering including having bone cancer where i haven't later uh maybe not immediately but later gone wow that god really used that in my life if for no other reason to develop godly character in me. And that's encouraging to me because uh, it makes me think that Christianity is true. As yeah. I see godly character worked out in my life, I go, Christianity is true. I would caution people, however, although that's true, and you're absolutely right, Reed, I would caution people. I would not say that to somebody who's sitting at the bedside of a child that's dying of cancer. I, I What I would do, the scripture says to weep with those who weep. Uh, I would encourage them that they will see the child in heaven, but I probably wouldn't start talking to them about uh, the lessons they're going to learn and how this is going to be for their good. Uh, I'd keep that, but there is a time. In time, parents real parents want to know, why did God take my child? Then uh, you say, well, you know what? I think you're going to find that God used this for your good. I have a student. In fact, I've got a, I want her to write a, a testimony for me. I have a student who said that she gave birth to a child who died in just a few days after birth. She says, I thank God that that child died because I learned so much and I would not be the person that I am today if God had not taken that child. And so suffering, again, is incredibly redemptive and God uses it powerfully in our lives. And I agree with you, Reed, that I, I like I say, including bone cancer, I haven't gone through any sufferings in my life at any time that God didn't use powerfully to make me more like him. And as he makes me more like him, I go, you know, Christianity's true. Yeah. Uh, and I'm really going to be saved and I'm really going to live forever. And we're not going to comply. We need a civil, civil disobedience again. 
we need the Martin Luther King Jr. once again to yeah. show the world how it's being done. Just no compliance. Go out there and do protests and do rallies. Not the BLM Antifa style with pillaging, murdering, and breaking, but peaceful resistance. Right. Showing the government we're not going to obey your orders. You need to go. So that's what needs to that's what needs to happen. And when they showed up with the court order, it tells me how corrupted is the system that the system itself right now says we don't care about your protections we don't care about the law and order now we're going to make up stuff as we go just to destroy you because why because we simply can and because the muslim mayor has enough influence to send the police that should always be in the middle the police should never take political sides either left or right you know they should be in the middle serving the people but it looks like the, the the politicians are using the armed forces like as bullies they're using them as the brown shirts of other hitler and, and that's a sad thing so this saturday i'm going to go to church and there's a lot of people hundreds maybe thousands of people that are coming to the church to support to surrender church and tell the government back off back off because we're not going to allow this to happen under our watch so i'm going to be conducting church service even though i can be arrested right now at any moment they can come right now to my house and arrest me but if that doesn't happen until saturday i'm planning to open the church and preach the gospel and do what i was called to do to defend our rights to defend our faith and to preach the truth because the bible says that the truth will set the captives free. The yeah. truth needs to be spoken out there. So pray for us and we'll see what happens uh, this Saturday. Well, I'm, I'm really glad you said that because one of the things that I really wanted to talk to you about is this, is that I, uh, I'm a Christian, so I personally believe this, but I also think history tells this story, is that w the, the greatest indicators of culture have never historically been the people who um, are negatively impacting society. It really has been very often the way the church has gone has dictated the way history will go. So when the church is complicit with with uh, Nazi Germany, then then we have uh, then we have a society that ultimately is doing all sorts of depraved things. So it's interesting to me that um, that very often what we have seen is what you've already illustrated is that we've seen that that pastors are not resisting or fighting back or standing up that they have all too easily allowed for the CDC and in, in our world but uh, wherever in your world to to tell us that we should shut our churches down and, and what we should do on Sunday so so that kind of concerns me so if there is no Martin Luther King Jr. If there is no Martin Luther, where does that leave us as the church? And and I've heard a bunch of different responses, and I'll just give you a couple of examples. I'd love to hear how people have responded to you and if you've received any resistance from Christians, because one of the things that Christians are great at is either apathy or division, and unfortunately they're not great at sticking together and, and fighting together and standing up for each other. Um, but when when the pandemic first started, I'm associated with a Christian group of church planters, and um, 
and that, that Christian group of church planters, one of the, the leaders of the organization posted a picture of John MacArthur's church. And I don't know if you know who he is, but he's got a really big church in, in California. And it posted a picture of it, and it had a bunch of people all together in their sanctuary, uh, not wearing masks. And he said, look at this. This is such a horrible testimony to the world. We're showing the world that we don't care about them, and we don't care about grandma. And, and, and I just thought to myself, boy, that is an interesting take on what's happening. So not only is he attacking a brother in Christ, but but his his stance was more so consumed with what the culture would think that he forgot to contemplate what God would would think about this. So what kind of resistance have you seen uh, to your stances with with what you're doing? Because I think ultimately the one thing I really want to speak to is to the to the especially to the Christian who's listening now and would say, Let's not overreact, Reed, or even this. Um, Reed, we don't need to operate in fear. Well, yes, we're not, we're not operating in fear. That's not the point. What, what we're doing is we're taking the mantle of the prophets of old who would look at society, and when society started to veer away from the truth, they would call the culture back to the truth of God's word. And I think God is raising up prophets like you who would say, enough is enough. You're not going to tell us how we can run our church. You're not going to tell us if we have to wear masks. We're going to, you're going to allow us to be responsible and mindful of our own flock and understand that we are the best people positioned to be able to care for our flock, but that is not your responsibility. Your responsibility is to serve us. So you're definitely doing that, but I'm just curious as the kind of resistance that you've, that you've seen to your stance. I got tens of thousands of phone calls and messages from around the world of people that are absolutely amazed and they take courage and hope and they say thank you for showing us how it's done and thank you for leading and standing so overwhelming support however I did not receive even one phone call from the local pastor from the city of Calgary can you imagine not one even though it's an inter- international story now for a month. I mean, every day there is this story circulating. Every single day there is somewhere in the news. And yet my own people here, the clergymen, would not even grab a phone. They know me. I have been here for 22 years doing this and would not call me or say anything. Actually, there is a huge resistance. Uh, the leaders... Canadian leaders, in most part, they are acting just like those against MacArthur's church, pointing finger at us. They have forgotten that we have a boss, and that boss is telling us, do not forsake the gatherings of the saints. They have forgotten that from the very beginning to the end of the Bible, there were always people resisting evil government and illegal laws. The you know, book of Acts chapter 4 we, you know, you be the judge whom we are to, uh, you know, obey you or men. Chapter five, they say we must obey God rather than man. Uh, the book of Daniel, he was told not to pray. He goes, opens the windows for all to see that he's going to pray. He broke the law. We're talking about Shadrach, Michigan, and Abednego. Right. They would not bow before the golden image. Boom, they are thrown into the fire. Then we got Esther, if I perish, I perish. Off she goes, breaking the law to see the king you got mordecai that was told by law to bow before the haman he chooses not to because he's not going to bow before the devil the evil man so the history the book the bible is such a beautiful historical you know factual book about the man the heroes of us that will not bow before evil governments will not bow before the evil laws and they made a choice we rather obey god than evil sinful people joshua says those famous words 
you know, choosy this day whom you're going to serve. Are you going to be serving the government or are you going to serve God? Who is your boss? Who is your God? And he says, as for me and my household, we shall serve the Lord. So that's the message I have to the Christians that Romans 13 is talking about the government that, yes. you know, yes. blesses those that do good. is not a threat to those uh, that do good blesses those that do good but is against the evildoers and they have a, a sword or a pistol right now against the evildoers we're not evildoers what we're doing is not evil the bible says lay hands on the sick it doesn't say you know pray for people through zoom chats it says lay hands on the sick anoint them with oil so how am i going to do that will i obey the commandments of god so those sick shall recover or i'm going to say no we are living in a different times the bible says that god never changes he is i am the lord i do not change jesus christ is the same yesterday today and forever he's unchangeable god he's lost stand if you love me obey my commandments if you don't love god you will not obey his commandments but if you love jesus you will obey his commandments so he says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but, you know, take the prophets, but to fulfill them. The law stands, the Ten Commandments. You really think the Ten Commandments are out the window because Jesus died for our sins? No, the law of God and the structure, the hierarchy, you know, stands. That shall not murder. That's it. We will not murder people because God says, don't do it. We will not steal. Those things are unchangeable never-ending statues of God and Christians have forgotten who they whom they are serving they're not serving God anymore they are serving either the wallet they don't want to lose their money the mammon which became their God or they're serving the state and the state is dictating them because that's their boss that's their God is telling them what to do and how to do it but the real shepherd a real church a real child of God is going to always follow the law of God and the commandments of God yeah, we cannot allow for the government to do our thinking for us because they're they're reading from a different book than the, than we are. Now that book may be fine, but it's not the same book. So there's there's three types of people in the world. It's a great quote from uh, the movie American Sniper. I don't know if you've ever seen it. I've seen it. I liked it. <laughs> there's sheep. There's sheep dogs and there's wolves. And so, so many people right now are falling into the, to the realm of sheep where they would like to believe that evil will never come knocking on their door. Um, you've seen that in your past. You're starting to see that too with what you're experiencing there in Calgary. So I'm just wondering if, um, one, I wanna say thank you for your courage and your bravery, but I'm also wondering what kind of encouragement you would give to people, especially because you talked about it, I think it was in 1981 in Poland, where, where the people actually said enough is enough. So, and, and maybe you can speak to that, but what encouragement would you give to people um, in, in not misapplying Romans 13, but standing up for their rights and doing the righteous deed of, of making sure that, uh, that they do not allow uh, dictators to, to reign, but that, but that righteousness rules in the land? Well, you know, lions, we have been called to follow the lion from the tribe of Judah. Lions never bow before the hyenas. Like I always say, lions eat the hyenas for breakfast. However, 20 hyenas can easily overpower, maybe not easily, but they can overpower one lion. But the moment the second lion shows up, the fight is over. The hyenas are on the run. Uh, because the Bible is very clear. One can do a thousand, but two can do 10,000. That's God's mathematics. 
we with God, we are always the majority. It doesn't matter how big is the enemy. God is always bigger. We know how the story ends. In 1981, I have seen the power unified force of people when they finally said to the government, enough is enough. They took it to the streets and they paid. Some paid the terrible price, but they won their freedom. Poland became the best democracy on the planet Earth. So we need, as Christians, do the same thing. We got to come together. We got to resist. We have to tell those villains, no, get out of our businesses, get out of our churches, get out of our universities, get out of our political arena and the media, get out. We are telling you now, we're giving you notice, no. And we know that God in the end of the day is going to reward those that stood with him. In the end, we know that we're going to win because God wins in the end. He always wins. When you align yourself with God, you cannot lose. So have faith. The Bible says without faith, you cannot please God. Jesus says, when I come back, will I find faith on earth? You got to be like that prophet of old, that God is looking around whom he can send. And he replied, here I am, Lord, use me. Be that man, be that woman. Say to God, I may not be the most talented man. You look at, listen to my accent. And yet God is using me right now internationally to send a message to the whole world, to the whole world that what is happening right now is evil and God is not pleased. And he wants to raise an army, the remnant church that will bring forth for him the last greatest harvest that this earth has ever seen, the great revival that is coming. And he's using me, he can use you. He owns the talents. He owns everything. If he wants to give it something to you, he's going to give it to you. Just be that man and that woman that says, here I am, Lord, use me. I don't know how you're going to use me, but use me. And if you say that, I'm telling you, your life is going to be the most amazing life that you could possibly imagine. Walking with God is always an adventure. Well, I'll just say this, that courage seems almost always like craziness in its time. It's only when we look back on courage that we can really appreciate it. So thank you for doing what Isaiah 59 says, when truth has fallen in the street, uh, justice turns back, there's unrighteousness, and even the righteous are attacked for turning from evil. And I'm sure you can relate to that a little bit, but thank you for being one of those people who would say, I won't allow truth to fall in the street on my watch. I will take it to the street. I will take a stand and, uh, and I'll make sure that I stand up for the truth. Thank you. God bless you. Well, God bless you. Thank you so much for your time, Arthur. And uh, thank you so much, everybody, for joining us. Bye-bye. Our thanks again to our guests for being on the show today. Indie Thinker with Reed Uberman was brought to you by our sponsors. If you like what you heard today, please do us a big favor and give it a five-star review and like it and share it with friends. And if you want to hear more awesome guests, make sure to check out past episodes. Indie Thinker is a nonprofit paid for by our sponsors and the generous gifts of people like you. In order to hear more great guests like you did today, please consider giving a tax-deductible gift by going to IndieThinker.org. And just remember, your voice matters, but infinitely more when you think for yourself. <laughs>